every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk for Boone County, Missouri. And with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we are excited to talk to Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont, Alec Ewald. And we're going to be talking about his research and all manner of things. It's going to be a great conversation. So thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. It's an honor to be here. I'm gratified and impressed and all kinds of curious about what you're doing here with the show as well as in your in your day jobs and the rest of your time. I got interested in election administration through a path that was probably pretty common, at least for a stretch in American political life, which was through the election of 2000. I was in graduate school in political science. I was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at the time. And I had written about felon disenfranchisement law. And there wasn't much written on it relatively at the time. And I was paying a little attention to Florida because part of what was happening in Florida in 2000 was right at the intersection of election administration and felony disenfranchisement. The state said they generated a list of um, voters who were no longer eligible and should be delisted. The counties later said they thought the state was giving them a polished list. The state said the counties were supposed to check it. But any number of live, non-felonious Floridians were disqualified because of felony conviction. But Bush v. Gore wound up having this line that the right to vote includes the manner of its exercise. And your listeners will know all about the recount and dimpled chads and crazy variation, the types of technology that were used in Florida's counties. And I didn't know. I just didn't know. I thought I knew so much about the right to vote and I knew nothing because I thought of it in this kind of two-dimensional way. It's a right. It's a marker of national citizenship. It's in the federal text of the Constitution. It's in the text of federal statutes. And it's protected by courts. And that's what it is. And it's not. It's made real by the things that you guys do. It's not about like a normative judgment about whether it's good or bad that it is that thing. But that's it. It's the practice of voting is made real by all of these local practices. So I wound up writing a dissertation and then a book that was trying to understand how this had happened historically and what it meant in terms of American political development, like the construction of American institutions and the changing nature of American ideas. I I really have come to think that election administration has always involved and continues to involve these really deep and important normative questions. And it's really this kind of layered, blended authority structure where the national government and the state government and local governments are are really helping to to run the show. So for example, Vermont and Maine are the only two states, um, actually Puerto Rico is not a state, but Puerto Rico is also a place where prisoners can and do vote. So Vermonters who are in prison uh, vote by absentee ballot. So whenever I'm talking to a Vermont town clerk, I'll I'll ask him or her uh, how often they have that experience. For you, and if you know at all, how the voting actually 
is carried out in Vermont in prisons um, because it's interesting to me because I actually observed voting in a prison in Ukraine, believe it or not, for a presidential election in Ukraine uh, because there prisoners can vote in prison. Uh, it, was a, it was a scary and fascinating process all at the same time. Um, but you know, are, are, the, are, the prison, are the prison administrators, do they just you know, line these folks up and, and give them a ballot or you know, what, what happens? No, yes, no. I mean, it, it's by and large in most years, it is absentee ballot in your town of previous residence. So you write to the town clerk, you, if you're not registered, you can register. The DOC, the Vermont DOC does have its own guidance that, that requires them um, to provide registration and voting materials to, to prisoners. They say they do that. It, it's been, it's a difficult thing to study. <laughs> DOCs are, you know, it, they're a pretty risk averse type of institution and it, it's not, voting in prison in Vermont, I would say is not, it's not quite as studied as many of us wished that it was, but by there have, so the no, yes, no, there have been, we had a very activist secretary of state, Jim Condos, our current secretary of state is, is also quite engaged in this issue, but Deb Markovitz, his predecessor, a couple of times was, was pretty involved um, as were the League of Women Voters and um, some others in setting up some in-person voting within uh, a few Vermont prisons, but by and large, and this is also the case in Maine, it's absentee, uh, ballot in, in the town where you where you previously lived. Um, yeah, look, I mean, you mentioned Ukraine and there's a num mo in most of Europe, uh, most prisoners remain eligible to vote. Um, the debate kind of stops at the prison walls, as it were. There are a few European countries where you can't vote while you're a prisoner, but everybody can after that. It's really only in the United States where somebody who's outside prison or there's even a question as to whether they can they can vote or not. But like the misinformation and disinformation problems are really, really serious. A lot of people who are eligible to vote do not know it. And I have to say, I talk to a lot of people in universities, you know, students as well as faculty. There's so much discussion among, and I've written some of these articles, but like there's so much discussion of the most restrictive states. There's so much discussion of the handful of states where some people are disqualified from voting even after their sentence is over that Americans tend to think that if you've got a criminal conviction, you can't vote. And it's not true. In fact, probably about two thirds, if not more, of Americans with felony convictions are eligible to vote because their sentence is over or in many, including in many huge states, some of them neighboring you guys, um, if you're on probation, you can vote. If you're on parole, you can vote in some in some big states. Um, by the way, a quick note on this that people might be interested. Um, the Marshall Project is this remarkable media organization that focuses on uh, the criminal legal system and, and, and it has an extraordinary website and they do some of their own reporting, but they also have a daily digest of all sorts of other stuff. The Marshall Project did an extraordinary survey. I wanna say last year, but it might've been 2019. Um, working with correctional officials, they surveyed prisoners about their political views and confirmed what a lot of us have experienced from, you know, conversations at various reentry organizations, a lot of Republican voters among prisoners um, in places where they're eligible to vote because they're pretrial detainees or they're Vermonters or Mainers or they're on probation. Um, but, you know, I, I think the assumption that people in prison 
or people with records would be more likely to be Democrats is probably true, but it might not be as true as, as a lot of people think. So uh, the, I really recommend the Marshall Project. Uh, if you hop on their website and sort of look around for that, it's, it's really, really fascinating report that they did. You wrote this book, I think it was published in 2009. It's called The Way We Vote. And the way I became familiar well, with you, at least as an author, was when I was in graduate school, I read that book, The Way We Vote. And I was uh, kind of just getting my start in election administration at that point. And one aspect of your book that for me was very enlightening were these stories of how election administration happened in early America, in 18th and 19th century America. And I think that's something, just like you made the point in the intro that you thought you knew all this stuff about how elections worked, but then there was this whole thing about the nuts and bolts of it that you really didn't know about. And I think even people who run elections today in the United States, they have no idea what their predecessors were doing, you know, a century or two ago. And so first, I guess, if you wouldn't mind just sharing maybe in broad strokes, how kind of election administration worked in early America. And I'd also be interested to know, how did you research it? Part of this book, and from my experience of writing it, and you know, inevitably from my own experiences of growing up in small towns, mostly in Vermont, I wound up much more positive, at least about the potential effects of local election administration and its potential kind of good fit with American democratic thought, American ideas about popular sovereignty. I mean, my methodology was pretty idiosyncratic. I, I read a lot of primary documents, for example, from the Jacksonian conventions that remarkable period in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, when the franchise was really broadened in the United States. And there were just these, and I really recommend these documents. There's a couple of books that collect excerpts from some of these state constitutional conventions. They're amazing, amazing stuff. Just political theater, political theory, just tremendous arguments about who counts and, and how elections should be structured. Um, I read a lot of court cases, obviously. I, I read a lot of secondary literature, his, you know, history textbooks and other books about election administration that have been written sort of prior to the time. Um, yeah, there's a couple of historical things. And, you know, you mentioned like the 19th century, but going back even a little bit further, there's a, there's a great sort of observation about the development of American voting rights and American voting generally, that is the United States had democracy before bureaucracy. And what that means is that we had a relatively broad franchise, obviously, admittedly, among men. Um, and there were some states, and this is actually an important uh, subpoint. there were some Northern states where free blacks were able to vote very early, but certainly among men, and in virtually all cases among men with property, compared to any country in Europe, the, Euro the United States had a quite broad franchise and relatively broad participation in elections too before there was any real governing capacity at the state level or certainly the national level. So when you think about something like a property test, a state might say that there would be a property test, but where were all of the records of property ownership kept? Where were all the voting lists kept? Those, were, those things were all kept locally. There was spectacular variation in how Americans voted. <laughs> I had no idea about this, but through the 19th century, at least some parts of the United States, some people voted voice, viva voce is this Latin phrase for live voice. You'd step up in public, perhaps literally on a stage, say who you were voting for. 
uh, you would then you'd go, they would treat you at the local tavern. It was absolutely a fully public thing. Many early theorists were very clear that public voting was really more democratic than secret voting. You should be able to publicly proclaim who you were voting for and others should respect it. And that was actually, there were at least two states when Congress first required voting to be by ballot in 1871, there were still a few, few states that were voting uh, by voice um, that late into the 19th century. So like that fact of like, and even where, even where voting was written, it sometimes involved a type of ballot where you would write down effectively in public who you were voting for. Second part of this, even as American elections shifted to ballots, the ballots were often colored and would be for, you'd, you'd be handed a ticket, a party ticket outside the polling place um, that had drawings on it to help you if your literacy skills were partial. It was colored in a certain way. You knew who was handing it to you. It was the party's election slate. It was totally public. So the local setting was absolutely critical there. And that was that really fed into, I hadn't really grasped the importance and the just amazingness in a lot of ways of the what we call the Australian ballot reform. Some critics mocked it as penal colony voting, even then Australia or kangaroo voting the sort of cliches and stereotypes for Australia haven't changed much, which is kind of depressing, but of having this private sort of state run election system that just hadn't existed. The parties fought it, but lost, they adapted. For about half of American electoral history, the vote was public far more often than it was private. And the local setting and local control was, was absolutely essential to that. To come back to your sort of opening question, you know, about what I learned from this whole process and how it shifted my own view here is that really from the, be from the beginning, local authorities, state authorities and national authorities have really had the shared and blended power over the right to vote and over elections and how they're run and what the right to vote means. Since, as I said, I understand the right to vote is this practice, you know, is what we actually do. You know, if you think like the right to vote is a national thing, the only thing the local folks are there to do is to help make it work, then the local folks are just like a risk and a problem. But if you think of the right to vote as a thing that we do, and you understand the local officials as the people who actually make it happen, then you're much more kind of able to, to see it in a, in a different way. Growing up in Missouri, when I was a kid, there's this famous painting. It's called the county election, but as a kid, you know, like in fourth grade learning Missouri history, it made no sense because I, there were no voting booths, everybody was outside. But I never gave much thought to it after that. And it wasn't really until I read your book that it made sense that there was this, you know, people milling around. Some of them were obviously drunk. And there was a guy on, on some steps, like uh, taking an oath. And there were some people be behind on the, on the stage that were kind of recording something. And that's really, like you say, that's, that's what elections were in a lot of the United States for a long time. And that painting, which I have to confess I, I did not know was Missouri, it's fun to think about that painting as a Rorschach test because people saw really different elements of that. Some people were like, it's a ritual, it's a celebration, it's a reason to show up. And don't underestimate that. Like, I, I want to have something interesting happen in my life. I want my neighbors to hold me in esteem as somebody who shows up for public stuff that matters. 
honestly, I might enjoy having a drink at somebody else's expense. I might enjoy putting my arm around some people that I agree with. And maybe we shout some stuff at some people we don't agree with. That that's going to be fun in a different way. Like this makes the election like a ritual event that I look forward to participating in a really active personal way. Whereas somebody else is going to look at that painting or stand there in that town square and be like, this is actually dangerous. This is, this is not only, you know, this is corrupt. This is not the reason people should be doing a sober, literally. Like there's a, there was a poem about the Australian ballot that referred to the, like the voting booth as a closet of prayer, you know, and there were some people who were like, that's what voting should be. It should be this reverential activity that you do by yourself where you sort of deliberate and reflect. You shouldn't be like yelling drunkenly with your friends. That should be, <laughs> that should be different from, from what voting is. So yeah, that Bingham painting is a great kind of touchstone for you know, the, the different elements of, of 19th century voting that really that helped lead to some of the changes that, again, like increased state and national authority, but really, you know, there's a line about, again, the Australian ballot that like, we need to take elections out of the hands of the parties, which had run elections by themselves, and put the ballot in the hands of responsible agents of the state. <laughs> and those responsible agents were you guys. I feel like that conversation comes up amongst election officials as well. I think that depending on which one of those styles you adhere to or believe that elections should be run has a pretty tremendous impact on what you do with the discretion that you do have how to do voter education, whether to do voter education, whether to try harder to engage voters in the first place. If we want to create, you know, a sense of community or bringing people into the process, or you say, it's really up to them. This is an individual activity and it is not my business to tell people to get involved in elections. They are to do that on their own and come to that decision themselves. And I, I don't know, I mean, to sing your song for you, to me, a local elections official saying, if you want to vote, I want you to vote. And I want to give you information about voting. And I want to help you vote. To me, that's a very different message from, I'm here from a political party. We want to kick the other party's bleep. And therefore, you need to help us by voting so that we can do that. that those to me are really different messages. You know, I think election officials have the potential at least to say, if you want to vote, you should vote for the sake of voting itself. You know, you should vote because this is a thing that we do together. One of the other things I was interested in you kind of expounding upon was, I don't know if you'd call it an overall conclusion in your book, but um, just the fact that you touched on this thing about local versus kind of centralized election administration and kind of what your conclusions were around that. In academia, you can get away with, you know, <laughs> hedged, tentative, if statement kinds of conclusions. But I wound up with kind of a one and a half to two cheers for localism for a few reasons. One is that I think, and by which I mean kind of local control over election administration. I think there's, and we've talked about some of this, there's real potential for better voter engagement, better voter ownership and understanding of the actual voting process, a better voting experience 
through local control, I think there's real, real potential there. Experimentation and innovation. Um, you know, states are famously laboratories of democracy, but localities can do that even better. Whether that's here's a good way that we found to uh, encourage people to register, or here's a a new type of convenient uh, voting that we've that we've developed. Um, here's a way that we're working with the parties. You know, here's a ballot design question that that seems to that people seem to like. Localism is also real obstacle to systemic corruption. So if you have, especially as long as you have paper ballots that are counted at the precinct level and are maintained, if you have a statewide controlled or even a nationally controlled election administration apparatus and you go to some dystopian (laughs) vision of corruption, that's going to be a little bit easier. Centralization is why Americans have always dreaded centralization. And again, it has potential. And Brandon, you talked about this a little bit earlier. Local election administration has at least the potential to increase uh, voter turnout. Um, Again, through the kinds of, you know, giving meaning to voting that we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, the actual having having county clerks and town clerks encouraging people to vote. But look, the downside, there's no question, especially in terms of equity, you know, if you have different levels of resources, if it really depends on whether your town clerk or county clerk is interested in encouraging people to vote in one place, whereas somewhere else, somebody else isn't. If you get real variation in how easy it is to vote in one place as opposed to another, I mean, I joke about this because I have the luxury of joking about it. Like I vote in small towns in Vermont. And of course I vote in person almost all the time (laughs) trying to walk the walk. But like, my joke is like, if I have to break stride on my way to voting, like on my way through the check-in, I, I feel it's a terrible impediment to my morning because there's so few people there that I walk in, I wave to somebody I know, I confirm my street address. Vermont has, doesn't even have a signature requirement. So I don't have, even have to sign anything. I just tell them who I am. They confirm that I live where I say I live. They hand me a ballot and I go off into my booth, right? And then you read about a four hour line somewhere else, right? So, and that is partly a function of what kind of machines, what's the error rate in those machines? How much money is there for how many polling places? So, you know, there are obviously risks and downsides, but I do think some of those, some of those potential strengths of local administration, coupled with the fact that this, that's, you know, look, that's the way it's always been. That, that's famously not how Americans make decisions. We, we do, you know, going back, Tocqueville famously observed that Americans don't give, we, Americans don't believe in saying we do that just because it's always been done that way. Um, but there is the lesson of American history that we've always had this blended uh, authority over American elections. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's part of how we got where we are that matters to me, so. All right, thanks for everybody for listening to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margin. Thanks to Alec Ewald for being our guest today. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you listen to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margin.